Welcome back to It's All In Your Head, Episode 3, Growing Up Around Mental Illness. Hey everyone, I'm Michelle. Alongside me, I have Tara Ray. So Tara, we decided to talk about growing up in families with mental illness. This is one of the things that you and I have in common. And it was difficult, you know, for both of us. We have different stories, the two of us, but there was a lot of mental illness in both of our families. So I've told you some of the stories. I don't know if I've told you all of them, but I know I've told you about my mother and maybe my grandmother. <clears throat> but which one do you want to hear first? <laughs> Let's talk about your grandmother first. So my grandmother had paranoid schizophrenia. And some of my memories of her, I, I didn't ever know her when she was normal until the very end of her life. And I'll tell you about that. But that when I was 12, I remember going to stay overnight with her. And I had just, you know, reached puberty. And my mother had allowed me to shave my legs, you know, because that's what you do when you're 12 and your legs start to get hairy, right? And I told my grandmother that my mom had allowed me to shave my legs. And she said, she said, don't shave your legs. Only hookers shave your legs. Michelle, that's terrible, you know. And she proceeded to tell me what an awful person I was because I was shaving my legs. And I was just horrified. I went home to tell my mother, who said, don't listen to your grandma. She's crazy, you know. And this was just one of many incidences that happened where my grandmother told me that the communists were after her and they were going to kill her whole family or that the neighbors were all communists. I mean, there were so many instances that I heard growing up about different things that were wrong or that the plants were poisonous outside that I needed to stay away from them. I mean, there were incidences after incidences with my grandmother and she stayed in bed all day long. And yet I knew she was a very talented poet. I would uh, read some of the things that she had written when she was younger, beautiful writer and poet. And yet um, as she wrote things when she was older, they didn't make sense, you know. And um, uh, when she got old enough that um, she had to be put in a nursing home, we went to visit her and we were sitting at a table with her and she was very lucid. Like she was completely lucid talking to us and telling us about how things were there in the nursing home. And suddenly she said, oh, she said, there's, look at that man over there. She said, he's so attractive. And we went to look and she goes, oh, no, no, don't look. She was just like a teenager. And she had this happy look on her face. And she said, I like him so much. And it turns out she had fallen in love with this little old man in the nursing home. Well, what had happened is that when she entered the nursing home, the doctor had diagnosed her schizophrenia and they had forced her to take medication because, you know, nurses stand over you in a nursing home and make sure you take the medication, you know. And so she had been forced to take medication, which had forced her to get well. Well, anything up to that point, because, you know, mental illness in the family, everybody had just ignored it, you know, up mm -hmm. to that point. And so for the next several months while she was in the nursing home, she was completely lucid and well and in love with this little old man holding hands in the nursing home. And unfortunately, she only lived about five more months. 
And um, when she died, on the day she died, my mother and I went to the nursing home to make arrangements for, you know, her body. And, and that little old man was sitting outside her door sobbing. And mm -hmm. the whole thing was just so sad that she, my grandfather had had to divorce her at one point because she thought he was trying, she, he was trying to kill her. And, and she had insisted that he leave. And so she'd spent 40 years alone. He had never completely abandoned her because he knew that she was mentally ill. So even though he didn't live with her and he had moved out and lived with my mother and actually had remarried um, off and on, he did nothing ever really worked for him, you know, romantically, but he continued to take care of her while he was alive in a sense that whenever something would break down at her house, he would go and he would repair it for her and things like that. And he would, he built an extra room on her house and he did everything he could to take care of her, but she thought he was always trying to kill her. And um, when he died, he died prior to when she went into the nursing home. My grandmother would tell me that grandpa's ghost was uh, attacking her because things would then break down and he wasn't around to fix it. So she thought his ghost was then trying to break things. You know, so this was grandmother's perception of everything because of her paranoid schizophrenia. And, you know, because um, it was a rental house next door to hers. And she thought that there was always communists living there. Um, you know, she thought that they were spying on her. And so one day um, she, she would go out, she went out to water her flowers and the person next door I guess had left a window open um, at their house on the side that faced grandma's house. And she took the hose and filled their house with water, just pointed the hose right into the open window that was between the two houses um, because they were communists. I mean, they're just all these things that had happened that grandmother had done all because she was just convinced that they were all communists and that they were after her, you know, and this was the nature of, of my life with grandmother. <laughs> anyway, I'm laughing. It wasn't funny, but I'm laughing, you know? But I think you have to find humor in some of it, especially when you've dealt with these kind of things as a child or else besides the, uh, the other trauma that we've already experienced, it would just be dread to even think about it. But I think also being mental health professionals and having a better understanding of it now has helped us because, you know, I have so many similar stories, most of them dealing with my mom, who also had a, a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. She, uh, she had other stuff going on, but that was the primary diagnosis that they would always carry with her. And I remember experiences as a child that people would be like, that really couldn't have happened. But it did, sitting in the house in the dark because people were after us, not using the, the stove at times because of certain paranoid ideas. Um, I remember it was a, a time when I would always mess it up because I didn't know what to do, but we would have to find a new place to live. I didn't know the background about why we weren't living at the old place, but I remember having to call my mom, my aunt, because wherever we were going at that time, they could discriminate. So we would go to places and she would find places where they say you couldn't have children. 
So she would say, call me your aunt. And, you know, just, it would just be all kinds of different things that would happen. She had all these different kind of ideas. And it was always someone in our family was after us. So we would move from different states and different places. And in her mind, they would just always find us. And to her, that put us in danger. But I think what her fear was, was me being taken, which happened eventually, and also being made to go into the hospital, which happened all the time. So what I knew of mental illness was just that very extreme level of mental illness, watching my mom be hospitalized, being her legal guardian when I was 21 years old, just because she was not in a place where she could take care of herself. And I remember, I remember one time, the first time that I ever was in on the decision to have my mom hospitalized, I was about 16 years old. And she was in the basement of my grandmother's house, which is who raised us, me and I have a younger brother. And she would just pop up. It would be years that would go by. And she would just show up out of nowhere. And she would stay for a while. And she was in the basement at this particular time. And she was down there. She was running back and forth. She would run and hit one wall. Then she would run and hit the other wall. And we were lit, like, this woke us up in the middle of the night. And I remember going downstairs to try to talk to her because it was those were the only choices call the police so they could come and get her and take her to the hospital or try to see if there was anything we can do and she had stripped her clothes off and she was just running back and forth naked running back and forth and I remember going down there and I was going to talk to her and try to get her to stop and I just knew she was going to respond to me and she chased me up out that basement so fast <laughs> and I started yelling call the police <laughs> just call the police because that was the only option and they took her to the hospital and you know they would ask her questions and she would say it's like 1975 and at this time of course it was much later than that because I was a teenager uh, she would say her daughter was 12. I'm sitting there as an older teenager. And they would say, okay, well, I guess, you know, we have the information that we need. And they would put her in the hospital. And this happened over and over and over again throughout my whole life. I can't tell you how many hospitalizations she had. Uh, she spent a period before they changed the mental health laws and there was still money available for people who were in crisis. She spent two years at the VA because she was also a vet. So she spent two years in a VA facility going through one of their long-term programs. And at the end of that, she was able to get out and have her own apartment, but that didn't last long because she would do the whole, I'm taking medication, now I'm stopping thing. And then she would spiral. So it was just this ongoing thing that would happen. And it happened so much that that became what was normal for me, which was odd. I didn't even think that nobody else's mothers were like that. Even though I knew that they weren't, it just was never, it would never cross my mind 
just how different my life was because that was all I knew from as young as I could remember having a mom that was mentally ill. Yeah, and speaking of, of mothers, I think because my mother was raised by a mom who was mentally ill, she um, had probably what was borderline personality disorder, uh, meaning that she had that very dramatic personality that flies into rages, you know, and um, my mother would fly into a rage and I was the oldest child. So I tended to get the brunt of her rage, which is what was the source of my post-traumatic stress disorder is that she would fly into a rage and um, I, you know, I would be the one that was hit and I didn't really understand um, what I had done wrong. I think it was just a constant source of confusion for me as a child as to what the rules were because the rules seemed to change and I never really knew what was going to set her off. And I'm sure this is what you can kind of probably relate to this too, not really knowing what the rules seem to change all the time. And if you don't really ever know what the rules are, it's just a constant state of anxiety. Mm -hmm. and, walking uh, on eggshells. Walking on eggshells all the time and never really sure um, how to conduct things. Um, I, I grew up never really um, unable to express an opinion because I was always afraid that, that I was going to get hit. And so I remember um, just being very timid and having completely low self-esteem, bouts of depression, Same. anxiety, and um, got into high school. Uh, and I, I just remember when I started dating, and I didn't start dating until I was quite, you know, probably into my junior and senior year of high school and went out with a guy in high school who um, was trying to get to know me. And he would ask me questions about myself and every question I would just say, I don't know. <laughs> you know, he'd say, well, what kind of cars do you like? I don't know. You know, what kind of music do you like? I don't know, you know? <laughs> and it's because I had learned not to have an opinion because every opinion would get me hit you know, if it was the wrong one. And mm -hmm. so he said, how come you don't know um, what, what you like about anything? And I said, I don't know. And I remember thinking what, how weird that is that I don't know what I like, you know? And he said, I'll tell you what, next time I see you, just tell me what kind of cars you like. And um, I started paying attention and that's how come I know that I like Mustangs is because <laughs> I started paying attention to what kind of cars I liked. <laughs> And it was the very first opinion I ever developed of my own mm -hmm. in high school was what kind of car I liked. Of course, being a guy, that's the first opinion he asked me about, you know. <laughs> but um, I started developing opinions of my own, um, you know, from that point on. But um, it's it just kind of like that's the source of, of, of where my low self-esteem came from mm -hmm. was that just having, being around that kind of anger and rage that was directed at me. Now, my siblings didn't have that kind of experience. Um, for some reason, it was just me. And interestingly, my mom's oldest brother uh, killed himself, um, and he was the source of my grandmother's rage as well. So the oldest sibling in my mom's house got all of my grandmother's rage. And he became an alcoholic at age 17 and killed himself when he was in his 30s. Mm -hmm. And then um, 
uh, my dad's brother became a drug addict and also killed himself um, in his 30s. And my dad's um, other brother, my dad's brother just below him also became an alcoholic and died of alcoholism a few years ago. So there's a lot of, and then my cousin um, also has bipolar disorder. So there's a lot of alcoholism and mental illness that runs in my family. Um, <clears throat> there's also a lot of people who've served in the military. So there's some good things that have gone on in my family too. But a lot of alcoholism, mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar, that kind of thing. Thank you, everyone, for joining us again. This is episode three of It's All in Your Head podcast with Tara Ray and Michelle Walker. We're going to be discussing growing up in families with mental illness. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because I don't want people to look at this segment like, oh, my gosh, this is such a downer. But it's just the reality of how we live and the fact that we're sitting here today being able to talk about it is a testament to how you can overcome. So us telling these stories are just, we know we're not the only ones, but I kind of like to consider us kind of like roadmaps where if we were able to get out of it and you're in these kind of situations or you're struggling with what you went through, you can utilize us as just that, a roadmap. So again, this is not a downer conversation. It's just the reality of what we've gone through. And I think about you saying that in the different levels of mental illness. I think my mom's mental illness was so extreme that it allowed us to ignore the subtle mental health issues that other people had going on. So I don't know anyone else in my family who was diagnosed with a mental health disability. I don't. And so because of that, it's like, that's why. Not that there weren't other things that were going on, because they definitely were. And you could tell those things that were going on. Uh, and I know just, I feel like as children, we kind of get forgotten because people don't care about what we're going through. So think about with everything that you've said, the multiple suicides in your family, the substance abuse, witnessing that, what you go through as a child. And I know that my PTSD was caused by sexual abuse and all kinds of other, just watching this chaos go on in family systems. But when there's somebody else to focus on, the kids kind of get forgotten. And I remember I wrote in my book that it was so bad that people didn't even know that I was in trouble in my mental health. They didn't. They didn't know. They didn't realize how low my self-esteem was. They were trying, I, I almost had a permanent hump in my back because I'm pretty tall. And I walked and all I did was look down at my shoes. I wouldn't make eye contact with anyone. Mm -hmm. There are whole chunks of my childhood that are, the memories are just gone. I don't have them, Me too. you know, which is a classic sign of PTSD also. I just don't have those memories. I, I couldn't even tell you about some of those things that have happened. And <clears throat> so just thinking about all of that, as we go forward, I remember the biggest thing that I worried about, I did not want to become my mother because I had been hearing, oh, 
this will happen and this is hereditary and no one wanted to talk about the abuse that she went through that caused a lot of the mental health issues that she was having so the abuse was ignored and it was made to seem like it was just natural i remember one time somebody said oh your mom went to a party and somebody put a mickey in her drink and that's why she's like that and it was like no that, that's just that doesn't make sense and so just going through all of the things that happened it was like wow you know i mean i experienced the depressed or the derealization that you experience a lot of the dissociation as a child that had ptsd and again nobody knew and for people who don't know dissociation is where your mind kind of separates itself from your body so that whatever's going on with the body the mind is not affected by it that's probably the easiest way i can explain it and just all of these different things and so based on that i remember thinking well what i need to do is just get out of get out of here get out of this situation get out of this situation but of course when i got out of it i took my issues with me because no one ever mentioned anything about how to address them now if i had shown extreme behaviors like my mom then that would have been addressed but those subtle things nobody even realized yeah and i think for me it showed up in my inability to keep relationships together i have a tendency to run as soon as things in relationships got hard and just jumped from one relationship to another and um you know couldn't just couldn't keep them together and unfortunately i would have children with somebody and even marry them and then things would get hard and i would just divorce them and jump ship you know right. and right. Mm -hmm, i couldn't keep it together and um just went that way clear into my 30s before um i was able to just i, I well first of all i got some help Finally, in my late 30s, I got medication and I got counseling and took time to work on me and get myself together, raise my children on my own for oh, about 10 years, raised my kids, got them into college and through high school before I met Serge. And um, so my kids were grown and on their own before I met Serge and got married. He and I have been together for 13 years and married for 11. But I did take a break from men, you know, and just raised my kids, kind of let them just work their own way through things too. And let things settle, so to speak, and try to work out more of who I was for a while that, so that brings opinion. me to, yeah that brings me to this question michelle because it's so funny and that's why we always talk about how much we have in common because we've both kind of done that same kind of thing which is the testament of what happens and then you make a decision and then you try to start taking care of yourself or you do the best that you can but talk to me a little bit about what it was that made you Feel like you had the permission at this point to go in to do something else like seek out counseling or anything what what led you to that decision oh gee 
I don't think it was, it was other people. Truthfully, it was my, my children who at this point were in their late teens, you know, it was the, the man that I was with at the time I was married to, who said to me, there, you have a problem and said, and, and, and it really, it was my oldest daughter, uh, Mandy, who it was my, my husband at the time was saying, Michelle, you have a problem. You really need to get help with it. I insist, you know, and I, at the time I thought that I was handling things and I know we think that we are those of us who've had trauma and problems. We think we're dealing with things and life gets harder and the, the coping mechanisms that maybe we're working in our twenties are not working. The mm -hmm. things we think we're working in our home of origin don't work in the real world and we don't realize it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I'm going along thinking that it's all working and people around me are saying it's not working. And I remember a conversation where I was sitting in my oldest daughter's bedroom and I said to her, um, sweetheart, um, you know, and I said, you know, this man's by name, I said, he thinks he's telling me that there's something wrong with me. I don't see it what do you think and she kind of sat back and she goes like this and she goes mom i don't want to tell you because i don't want to hurt you and, and i said well honey i think i should know and she sits there like this not wanting because she's a sweetheart you know she doesn't want to tell me and she goes mom there's something wrong with you and there always has been and something just zinged in my heart. It's like something I have been denying for 35 years at that point or 37 years at that point because she was 17 and I had her when I was 20. Um, just It just zinged in my heart and I knew that she was right. I knew that there was something wrong with me and there always had been. And um, I, I said, thanks, honey, I, I needed to know that. And I walked into the bathroom, curled up in a corner in the dark, and I cried for probably the next two hours. And after that, I went to a psychiatrist and I got an evaluation and they, they actually diagnosed me with generalized anxiety disorder and um, major depressive disorder. And that was my diagnosis at the time. And they put me on medication. And um, it was not, it wasn't an immediate fix at that point. It took almost two years really to find the right medication. And the first thing that happened was I gained 60 pounds and I went from being a normal size person to a plus size person and had to deal with a lot of um, um, just the anxiety of, of gaining that much weight from medication. I had never been overweight in my life and it was from there, I went through a major depression. <laughs> I mean, my weight's gone up and down over the years. I've just learned to dress it. But um, yeah, it's been a hard ride. But my kids kept saying, Mom, stay on the medication. You're better on the medication. And um, over the years, I've just, I've just learned to um, have a better quality of life. And my, I've had to do a lot of repairs with my children and um, repairs of things that I put them through, dragging them from one relationship to another that I didn't, I didn't realize how badly I was hurting them, you know, things like that. And 
Um, at this point in my life, I feel really blessed that my children are all very close to me and very close to each other. And everything, and I'm very good friends with their father, fathers in this case, and we are very great co-parents all together, surprisingly. And I feel blessed at the way it's turned out. It could have been so much worse you know, than it was, but I've had to work really hard and done a lot of praying to make that happen. And um, it hasn't been, you know, any kind of bed of roses for sure. And I, I think about, man, just so much of those different things that come up, just the whole entire issue. I remember it because no one has ever told me if that makes sense. No one's ever told me. No one said, you're not right. But I realized that, that I was living in a way that, and this for me, it started with my spiritual journey, if that makes sense. So I felt like I was living in a way that was beneath my privilege as a child of God, just being honest. And I didn't know where to start or what I needed to address. But the reality is the Bible says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when I heard that, I'm like, that is your problem. It's something in your mind. And as I started to really explore that, that became the thing. And that's why I'm such a CBT person. That's cognitive behavioral therapy for people who don't understand the therapy language. But I'm so CBT because it started for me in my mind. It really did. And recognizing there was an issue and addressing it on every level, how I was raised, caused an issue in my mind. The abuse I sustained caused an issue in my mind. The all of all of those things even decisions that i made that caused an issue in my mind the addressing my thought process was so important and realizing that i really did even though i did not believe it at the time when i started this process but that i deserved to live a better life than what i was living and once i did that i set out to do whatever i needed to do to make sure that that continued. At one point in time, people who know me now wouldn't believe it, but I was so serious about everything, like tight. Yeah. But I'm not like that now, but it took that process of me going through that and actually getting to a point where I could be comfortable with me, whatever it meant. I'm okay that I'm a little neurotic, that's me. <laughs> I'm okay that, you know, I have to have, whatever it is that I do, that I don't mind being busy, that I just, just getting to the point where I was okay with me and recognizing that there was nothing wrong with the me that I was choosing to grow into being. She didn't have to be like anybody else. I, I've had to fight the expectations that other people had of me. I had to fight the constant battles of trying to be accepted based on my circumstances and for people who read my book they'll understand why but based on the circumstances within inside of my family based on what was going on with my mom my brother 
who I have a, a younger brother who passed away so a few years ago, about five years ago, because he passed away as soon as I moved to Georgia, uh, that he also struggled with his mental health. And it was so recognizable that it was like, you know, this can't just be, oh, we're gonna chalk it up to genetics. There's gotta be something that we can do that can ensure that we have better lives. And so for me, it was the grunt in the beginning and the refusing to settle for a, a worse life than what I thought God had for me. And that's where really where it, it steered me first. And that's when I found out my purpose was to be in a certain level of ministry. And my purpose was to actually be a counselor and that I would help people with my experiences and share my story. And that with inside of itself has been healing for me. I always resist medication, even though it's been times that I know I could have taken it. But I'm like, nope, I'm gonna power through. And the stubbornness I think has helped me to really overcome a lot of the challenges that I had. Because even though now we're more, we talk about mental health and things like that, when I was growing up, even in my 20s and my 30s, you could not, you still in the African-American community would not talk a lot about going to counseling, being in counseling, having anxiety, being depressed. God forbid you talk about PTSD because they would look at you like you were crazy and say you've never been to war. They didn't understand complex PTSD and what occurs when you have this kind of chaotic living with inside a family system. So just educating myself and doing all of that really has helped me to power through. And I still have to do, I call it building the car while you're driving it. I still have to do some of that repair with my children because my first son was born when I was 21. Well, almost 21, like two months shy of 21. And so he, I, I look at my children, I'm like, they're all me at different stages in my life and in my development. So my youngest is way more confident than, than his siblings because they, he got to experience me at a different time in my life than the older kids did. So I think about all of that stuff and how it all matters and it's interrelated. And we should not be afraid to talk about it. And I guess that's the thing that also had been kind of a hindrance you don't want people to know that you had such a hellish childhood. But the reality is you did. And since you were able to overcome, we might be able to help somebody by telling that story. Yeah, and I want to talk about, you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. I want to explain that a little bit better for people. And what that is, is just this idea that our thoughts create our feelings, which create our behavior. Absolutely. So if you can change the thoughts, that changes how we feel, which changes how we behave. So what, what Tara is talking about is she was able to change her thinking, which in turn changed how she felt and changed how she behaved. So she takes how, she changes her thinking, essentially. And then that changes everything else on down the line. And the way that you did that was through your spiritual life, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and you work and on, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and that's not everybody's way, but that was what worked for me. But I have to say that along the way, as I was becoming a therapist, one of the internships I did, um, well, I was a single mom. And so I had to choose these internships that paid because 
I needed money, right? And the ones that paid were drug and alcohol treatment. So I took an internship at a wilderness treatment program out in central Utah at the time. And I had never had a drug or alcohol problem. So I felt unqualified, but it was the one that paid, right? So I was talking to the clinical director and I said, how do I make myself more qualified in this 12-step program, right? As, as a therapist here to work with these people, I said, I've never had a drug or alcohol problem. And she said, well, and she, she had known me a little bit, you know, she talked with me a little bit and she said, everybody has. And she said, and you might find that you have personality issues that would qualify as addictions. And I probably did, you know, at the time. And she said, just take your personality issues and put them through a 12 step program as if they were addictions. And, uh, and I know that I did, I was a control freak at the time. And uh, I took my control issues and put them through a 12 step program as if they were my addiction. And, and truthfully, um, that very spiritual program, um, taking my control issues through that very spiritual program was life changing for me and trying to develop a relationship where I turned my life over to God and turned my need to control things, you know, over to God was life changing for me. So I, I have to agree that allowing God to take the reins, so to speak, in my life was was a very integral part of my recovery from mental health issues too. So I agree that way. If you're going through the things that we've talked about today, here's some things that you can do. Importantly, you might wanna find a trauma therapist. There's diff many different kinds of trauma therapy. I do something called EMDR trauma therapy. There's emotion freedom technique, there is cognitive behavioral trauma therapy like Tara does. There's many different kinds. You can just Google those things and find some trauma therapists. One of the things to be most importantly aware of is that in those most dysfunctional families, they'll say what, what happens in the family stays in the family. Don't let that happen because that's just a way of keeping that trauma inside the family. 